Imperva protects applications wherever they live and at the pace of development. From securing applications at runtime to protecting APIs in any cloud environment, only Imperva offers a unified solution across edge, application, and data to help you achieve more and save money. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web applications at securityweekly.com forward slash Imperva. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked about building an AppSec lab at home or in the cloud, using virtual environments to recover from mistakes, uh, we all make a few, and the importance of taking notes. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella, someone who doesn't make mistakes, but who does still use virtual environments. And it's just about time for the news. First, an announcement. Don't miss any of your, uh, your favorite Security Weekly content, just like us. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone, whether it's a virtual environment phone or not. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and chat with us live or follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. So John, we just talked about building an AppSec lab, and now it's time to talk about lots of news for the types of vulnerabilities that may show up in AppSec labs or that we might want to experiment with. The first article that, that I wanted to touch on was actually about something that, at least to me, seemed a little bit ancient and by now obscure, which was exploiting Apache Cassandra, um, which is a name I hadn't heard about in a long time. So I just, I may be just out of touch. It's not me that's out of touch. The kids are out of touch. Um, but this is one of those articles that I highlighted because it wasn't so much about the Cassandra aspect, but there was a, a point in the article, which is a great write-up from the JFrog security research team. And it even notes that, quote, these options are documented to be insecure. And then it goes on to kind of just reinforce why they're not insecure. But it also adds that extra caution so they shouldn't be deployed in a publicly accessible network. Now, I, that's not <laughs> incorrect. I think that's <laughs> good to say. But what I thought of as a perhaps a good threat modeling exercise or a good pro application security weekly exercise is, is a publicly accessible network the only place where that shouldn't be deployed? And that's a leading question, perhaps, in the sense of we talk about CI/CD systems, we talk about you know lots of attacks against developer systems who might actually have access to that production environment. So publicly accessible network is one of those ways that I'm saying, what about zero, you know, tell me, tell me you're trying to talk about zero trust without using the phrase zero trust here. <laughs> and I think that's what I'm getting to. So let me say, you know, so Mr. Kinsella, have, have I lost, have I gone to marketing and I've, I've, I've said zero trust now? Well, how, how bad has it gotten? CTA is what the kids say. Um, ZTA and CT. CT, you know me. Um, uh, yeah, no, because Cassandra is still in heavy use. Um, by oh, the good. yeah, so the the, um, the 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 other group of kids out there that are doing maybe not so much machine learning, but um, remember nowadays we're not talking about big data, but it's data lakes. Um, and one of the vendors likes to use the phrase data lake house. I, I I'm the marketing person who came up with that. They're probably still patting themselves on the back. Um, but either way, so yeah, uh, Cassandra is still in a lot of use. Uh, Hadoop still in a lot of use. Um, there's some other systems out there, but on open source size, these two guys still get a, a pretty decent amount of use. Um, but I, I like the angle you're taking it from, uh, from the point of view of this should never, you know, if, if you're running a um, any type of organization that that's, you know, you're shoving data into this bad boy and you are um, 
then doing crunchy crunchy and, and providing results to either to a user or to the executive either way um you don't put it it out in the middle of the you know the open it's the same as if you've got an oracle database that's going to be behind a few layers um probably if you're using cassandra you're probably feeding it with um oh come on brain um begins with a k uh kafka so you're probably using Kafka as uh, you're doing, if you're doing modern data science type things, you put Kafka in front of it, um, you'll have some streaming data coming into it. Again, you do crunchy, crunchy, sometimes before you go into a database, sometimes after, depending on how you're doing the data. But so the point being here, each of those applications, uh, if, if you want to visualize for a second, since we were talking about Amazon before, um, this might help for some people. Uh, each of those sort of layers, you know, you've got your, your public facing internet, um, you've got that web application, then an application server, or an API server, then you've got the, the Kafka type thing, and then this other thing. Each of those is probably going to be in a separate AWS VPC box, your little orange dot, dot, dot around it. Um, and the reason for that is so if something goes bang back here, um, if something goes bang at a front level, they're not getting to your data, but also vice versa. If something goes bang in the back, um, it's not going to come, you know, drunkenly stumbling out and affecting the rest of your application. So, um, and it's funny, I was talking to someone the other day about vulnerability management, uh, and this is part of it, right? How you, You're not always going to be able to identify those vulnerabilities quick enough, but then what's your defense in depth look like? So this is why I'm, I'm backing into that story of, of having some sort of firewall around it still. Um, and the unfortunate part about this is to talk about the vulnerability itself for a second. It's sort of like a, it is like a large Oracle database. If you're using that, any sort of large data store, um, you're probably going to have to take that thing down to do a patch on it. So it means it's not going to be patched nearly as quickly um, as some of the other things in our environment, right? We can we can fire we can respin that lambda in you know ten minutes, five minutes less. Um, I'm talking real production, not like theory. But um, with Cassandra, the restart alone is probably going to be. If you've got a lot of data in there, it's probably going to be. I'm guessing 30 minutes. I could be wrong here, but if you've got a really big data, right, just spinning all the nodes back up um, and getting everything rehydrated is it's not a simple task. So yeah, that that's the unfortunate part of finding a vulnerability like this. But again, a good reason to have that thing locked down and kept in a, you know, once you realize that, that you can't just <laughs> hit the power button quickly um, in the middle of the day, that gives you another reason to try and protect this thing a little bit better. So sort of operational aspect on it, I think. Yeah, I think um, uh, other than I, my my lesson learned from there is that I think your hacker handle now has to become crunchy, crunchy, bang, because that was a wonderful <laughs> description. And uh, the other the other takeaway is uh, just to reinforce, as you're describing, that the isolation here of these systems like this, having that strong auth authentication as well as strong authorization, um, especially within you can do this within the complexity of AWS IAM or any of the cloud service providers. And uh, that's going to give you some more runway uh, when you need to. To, um, <clears throat> deal with these types of, uh, of vulns that come up. I'm going to try and make this segue here because we use this as an article to talk about uh, uh, perhaps an aspect of threat modeling and, and considering the, the 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 larger aspect of what is being uh, built here, what's trying to be protected. To uncharacteristically, I threw in not an article but just a tweet thread. Now it's only 18 tweets; it's relatively short, but it's relatively clear. And this was one of those lessons learned. Um, from the the crypto as in cryptocurrency space, this, in this case a DAO, uh, that was um, basically the the victim of a hostile takeover. And the angle that I thought you know we could bring into here is that all of their code could have been 
written in memory safe language like solidity for example all of their code could have had been, could have been reviewed perhaps for technical correctness meaning a couple of episodes ago we were talking about missing fallback functions that that caused issues when there was doing uh, when, when uh, an attacker could take advantage to move uh, coins from one chain to another chain you know cross chain um, money movement and take advantage of that in this case it's more about the you know the product security angle of what have you threat modeled your workflows or when you're talking about a bad actor your malicious actor isn't someone who's just doing a bunch of input injection attacks here's a cross-site scripting payload here's a sql injection payload if that's the if that's the you know the limit of what your threat modeling looks like I'm going to say that you're still kind of stuck in the 90s mentality of AppSec. That's not necessarily say it's wrong, it's just incomplete. And in this case, there's a lot of really fun, interesting ways of how this attacker came in, basically was able to collect enough coins to get the voting, um, uh, be able to vote them for themselves in favor to say, okay. you know what, I want to take all the money out of this, let's vote on it. Hey, I just so happened to vote about it, and sure enough, I'm going to take all the money out of it. And the attacker also did a few things in terms of trying to minimize the alerting around this type of uh, of activity. So there's also an aspect of monitoring or understanding how perhaps workflows or logic, business logic, to use the old, uh, I think, um, OWASP top 10 language, how that can be abused. So for me, I thought that could be, as you've noticed, for me continuing to talk without taking a breath, uh, kind of an interesting lesson in how product security also needs to understand the, the perhaps non-technical issues. What's the workflow that you're trying to protect here? So that was what was interesting to me. Um, hopefully there was something also interesting to you, John. What, what, what have you got here? The, the first interesting thing, man, this is. Um, <laughs> so when I was looking at this um, pre-show, I'm like, oh yeah, it's it's the Twitter thread on on the the almost compromised last week. So there was actually two separate threads of two completely mm. different stories about um, crypto compromises last week, and I was looking at the other one, thinking it was this. Um, I don't have much to say around this. I think he did a good job. I think what's interesting is so this is apparently lingua franca is when we have something happen in uh, the crypto world that um, they're not gonna be using full disclosure or any of those other sort of paths that we're used to going through, us, you know, old gray-haired, I don't know, is there some gray here in here, maybe someone. Um, but uh, instead they're going to be just blasting it out on Twitter, which is, um, it's not bad. I, I, as long as they're, they're still doing full disclosure in some way, right, and there's transparency there, which is amazing. Um, it's just something we're gonna have to sort of get used to in getting it in whatever 250 characters at a time or whatever limit is nowadays. Um, yeah, nothing to add. It, it's I, I think I think the takeaway for man, I hope there's you know if there's crypto people out there listening to us, you know, welcome. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you're working on. I'd love to hear that some of the stuff we're talking about is helping you think about these in a different way. Because really, the takeaway from these threads should be okay. How do I make sure that my product, either commercial or not, learns to not do these same things? Um, or what I'd really love to see is someone coming out with a framework, um, equivalent of, the equivalent of React for um, Ethereum or any of these, so that people don't. It's harder for people to shoot themselves in the foot, right? I mean, that someone should be working on that frantically right now if they're not. Um, 
and it shows my, my knowledge in space that could exist. I just don't know. My apologies. But I, I guess that's what I'll, I'll that's my comment. And I'll shut up on that one. <laughs> well, don't shut up for too long because uh, I had just a, a really quick article that might uh, at least get you interested. Let's see. Last uh, episode, we talked about NLP AI that I thought mm. was actually pretty awesome. It was using uh, natural language processing to look at you know, human-written RFCs turned about a protocol, turn that human-written protocol description into a finite state machine, and then pull in a automated attacker simulation, aka fuzzing, essentially, to do this all from an automated mechanical um, aspect. And so that, to me, was something that was really neat, really strong example of a of AI that could be helpful. Uh, just a real quick article. Uh, AWS, their AI code reviewer, now can apparently spot log for shell, log for J, like bugs in both Java and Python. I didn't dive into it too uh, deeply. It was something that was like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten i'd forgotten that they had a, a code reviewer of sorts but um not, not not much else for me to add there other than maybe a point of interest if anyone's using that let us know and uh john i know you do play within the aws land so i was just kind of curious if this is something that was has been on your radar you know i'm familiar, I'm, I'm aware of code guru i actually haven't used it yet uh we've got um someone else in our builds chain uh, i don't know if i want to Say it for now. I won't. It's nothing against them, but it, there's someone else I like, but I'm just not here to advertise um, today. Uh, so it, it's so here's where I am on this one, and this is sort of the more interesting thing. Uh, my co-founder and I, we we sort of go back and forth with how much do we want to embrace um, Amazon and put all our stuff in that in let's say any cloud provider, but that one. So I'm using GitHub for my code, um, you know, with um, uh, a few tools, either both handwritten or internally written, as well as third-party commercial tools. Um, then we do our deployment from there through CDK back out into the Amazon world. Um, and we're aware that if we put some of our parts into, some of our code parts or our build parts into the Amazon tools, they're probably going to deploy more efficiently and faster into the Lambdas or ECSs or those type of things. Um, but I'm always like, okay, how close do I want to get? Do I, you know, I still want to have a bit of, don't want to hug them too tightly. So that's where it becomes interesting to me. Um, but at the same time, if this is a decent tool, I can't remember if they're charging for this one or not. I think it might be free. I think I'm not positive, but it, it's definitely worth me poking around over the weekend and going, hey, what does this thing do? So I'm, I'm gonna try and do that. And then next time we, we, we talk about them in the future, I'll be able to go, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Two things by themselves doesn't thrill me. I mean, you, you yeah. spot, okay, log for a shell like bug. So that means, let's tear that one apart for a second. That means they're basically doing the chess move of, um, you know, source and sync and figuring out where does that data come in and how's it being used. Um, okay, so they've, they've added source and sync tracing for Java and Python. That's been around for 15, probably 20 years. So were they not doing that before is my question. So I'm looking at it more from a grizzled, why would I want to adopt this point of view now? Um, and it might be decent. I just, I, I haven't touched the thing. So, um, but that, that this feels like a press release um, to obviously capture that corner market, which what I'm hearing from my other friends in the vulnerability industry is they're seeing more business as a result of, of log four, Jay, ah. log four show. So they're sort of contributing on, or they're they're getting on that a little bit. But um, yeah, I'll definitely go kick the tires, and, and we'll we'll report back in a future episode. 
But also, also again, as we always say, if you're using this stuff, catch us on uh, the Twitters or in Discord, and we'd love to hear feedback. We would, and because um, I bet we'll also hear feedback from users out there of SEMGREP, because I know that has popped up onto the the InfoSec uh, industry radar in the last two, mm. three years, and yeah. um, it's it's well-liked, I think well-deserved, and that's also why I wanted to bring it up. So mm. it's nice to have lots of different code review tools, but, um, you know, SEMGREP is, you know, I think, I think, I guess the reason I'm saying that is that something with a community behind it is often going to be perhaps more successful because you have a lot more shared knowledge to, to help with, you know, shared vulnerabilities, such as the log4j-like bugs. And that's so, also why, I, oh, go ahead. I'm, I want to push back on that one for a tiny mm-hmm. second. Um, yeah, you got those two in there, the SEMGREP and the, the Dependabot in GitHub. Um, they're decent, right? So in, in the reason I'm pushing back on this, um, I'm in a new security accelerator. I can't talk about publicly yet. We're waiting for the announcement to come out. But um, the one of the other, one of a, a startup from a previous cohort is talking to you this week, and they were talking to us. They go out to the market and try to sell their their product. Um, one of the comments they're getting from customers to say that they don't want to buy is like, well, I've already got GitHub with Dependabot and um, SEMGREP. Mm-hmm. And okay, uh, if you've actually tried to put SEMGREP into production use, um, and I think the, the key part here is where you mentioned is the community. If you go out and get a good set of community rules, you're probably fine. By itself, it's just another tool. Um, uh-huh. I saw one group, another separate um, group, which I have direct access to, that they initially tried it and they didn't have it set up very well. And really all I was doing was slowing down their build by 10 minutes and producing about 1,000 <laughs> issues. So it really comes down to, and the reason I'm mentioning this like this is, do you want to do it yourself? Or like our last segment, do you want to go to the Amazons or, um, um, I, again, I, I don't want to mention other names out there right now. I've talked about them in the past. But um, do you want to go with these commercial tools where you just drop it in and like it, it tells you? And what the newest tools will do now specifically is they're not going to give you alerts across your whole code base. They'll actually say, um, hey, I see you did a commit in this file, so I'm just going to alert on the things we know about in that file. Since your focus is already there, you don't have to go and look at a new, completely different part of the code. You could just fix something nearby what you're working on. So um, there's a lot of sophistication in them. Um, and I, I think the other tools are great. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking them completely. <laughs> but I, I think the question comes down to, as a young startup, do you want to put the effort and try and get those things working the way they need to be? No, great point, and that's why that's why we have you here, John. Because without you, I'd just be another tool um, talking <sighs> about these things. Um, but uh, speaking of tools, in a in a more kinder perspective, I also grabbed a um, real quick article on Rust Survey 2021 results, and. This doesn't have a direct AppSec uh, necessarily angle to it, other than we have been talking about Go and Rust quite a bit. And as I always repeat, I I do love them from the perspective of awesome. Memory safety is an attack class, or memory safety issues is a class that they've addressed. You can still have path traversal in Go, which we've seen just this year. So that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But what what caught my eye here is that um, the, the Rust community does like their compiler, they like their language, and apparently one of the top feedback, you know, top winners of praise was the compiler error messages. And I thought that was pretty interesting because that is, it speaks to the idea of just better developer experience. And as someone who always, you know, loves to see the idea of compiler warnings that can lean towards potential like software quality issues, this software quality that can also become 
security issues, friendly compiler messages, or just anything that's more friendly to developers to say, you know, go back to that clippy, like, I see you seem to be making an error in your code here. What if you did this? And it was more quality or I hopefully fingers crossed more secure that just kind of it, it caught my eye I, I liked that aspect I was just kind of curious as someone maybe you do some more coding I think on a daily basis than I do does that kind of not maybe not rust in particular but does that sort of friendly error messages or just positive or helpful feedback from the the compiler about the quality of your code is that something you're seeing improve over time is that something that resonates with you yeah, you know what's interesting to me about that is, um, you know, I'm just looking at some of the pre-pictures of this report. But what's what's interesting about this particular comment is it sets the stage for the um, culture in the community. By which mm -hmm. I mean, if your compiler, your your base level is giving you error messages, which are either easier to understand or more detailed or easier to read, or they're they're um, they're easier to consume by the developer. I would hope that that gets the developer into the mindset of expecting errors like that. And then when yeah. they write errors for their users, they don't look like the errors coming out of the YAML parser that comes with Go. Um, so so that would be my thought there on that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is important, right? You know, if I'm doing code review on, on my guys or even writing my own stuff, I try to make each error message distinct enough or both distinct enough and descriptive enough. So if I see it back to, you know, talking about CloudWatch last hour, last half hour, if I mm -hmm. see that error message come through, I can grab in my source code and actually figure out where it is. Now, what we should be doing, what we're talking about is actually having unique error codes. That's your next step up. But either way, I want something that it, it, it always comes back to me, like not so much writing the code, but or how my users use it. That's obviously important. But how do I troubleshoot the damn thing? So that that from that point of view, yeah, super important. Um, since Rust has been on my mind recently, I'll slightly editor editorialize for a second. We are a Go shop. Um, we have adopted a open source slash commercial um, uh, authorization engine, which I'm quite fond of, Oso, um, that's written in Rust. So when I bring that into my Go code, I have to switch to CGO and link in through the C library, which means, or through C linkers, which means that. Um, I'm now losing some of my ability to do uh, performance uh, testing, um, use the debugger, some of the other things which you lose with Seago. Um, and now since we're going out to Lambda and we want to go to, well, I'm on, my new box is a M1 Pro. My, my standard one I'm looking at here on the podcast is usually an Intel uh, Mac. Um, and then we're either Intel on um, AWS or we're moving towards the Gravitons, which means I've got to cross compile pretty much from any of these platforms. So cross-compiling in Go, it's there by default, but once you go to C Go, that gets turned off. So we're now looking at another compiler, which I want to pick your brain on, actually. Um, Z, Z something or other. It's in way too many tabs back. But I'll track it down and talk to you about it <laughs> off air. Um, Ziglang, I've never heard it before, but it's pretty popular. But anyways, so that's, it's, it's you know, once you, when you're, the point here is when you're in a, um, an ecosystem, you embrace it and you love it. But once you start bringing in pieces from other places, um, I don't want to tell the Oso. I don't want to ask the Oso guys. Hey, could you rewrite this and go? But I'm very tempted to, or I'll maybe do it myself. But um, you, it, it's it's interesting how you what trade offs do you make? Which pieces do you want? So that's you know um, my my rust. I won't call it a rant, but uh, um, that's where my my brain goes. Unfortunately, right now at rust, it's I still want to learn. it, still want to embrace it more, but it doesn't play doesn't play very well with my my other baby. 
yes, you know, plays well with others. That's what we need to uh, see within the security industry, not, not to mention perhaps the security people as well. I think talking about that, um, I'm trying to make a, a set up a segue here into the inter- introducing enhanced security for Microsoft Edge. So a couple months ago, we did talk about what they've lovingly called their super duper secure mode, which is Sure, lovely, lovely turn of phrase, uh, but it's not necessarily, well, it may be a little bit hyperbole, but it's not necessarily vacuous. And in this case, uh, this is uh, the the Edge team uh, des- describing how they've gone in to harden the, the WASM interpreter to uh, to have arbitrary code guard enabled for it and we talked about you know the uh, microsoft slowly releasing some enhanced security for edge but they were running into issues like WebAssembly, which is dynamically generated, which then suddenly causes a lot of overhead issues, uh, brain hurting, if you will, for trying to secure it from certain types of attack classes. So what was neat here is now they are dropping in a way to protect against a type of attack class, meaning attackers coming in and in their exploit chains using WebAssembly to say, cool, this is going to be, you know, it's basically JIT code. I'm going to mark some of this memory areas as executable and I'm going to drop my exploit code into this area of memory, turn into it, execute, and bam, I've gotten my zero day now at my and taken over the 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 um the browser. So uh but Microsoft has looked at this and they've done a couple things. One, they've actually said performance, you know, there was a performance hit for some of the other security approaches they took, but that performance hit wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not human noticeable. And in this case, they also did actually have to, you know, they they, they took some performance hit in this uh, WASM sandbox to, to throw on ACG, but it's not necessarily a terrible hit, and it seems like a reasonable trade-off. And it, at the very least, they're doing this type of work transparently out in the open and there's a google doc around drum break which is the tool that they are have here um uh, that i just uh throw in for a link to if you'd like to learn more but uh, i think i've exhausted the level of detail i'm going to be able to get into for 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 this one right now so i think what you're saying mike this is what this the other name they have for this new um mode is um doesn't hurt brain as much mode <laughs> I think um, so. Sorry. So I'm, I'm reading through this, and as uh, about 20 seconds ahead of you going down this page, and I'll quote a, a beginning of a paragraph, quote, to enable this, we are building a new WASM interpreter. Um, mm-hmm. Man, I hope those are words which never, ever come out of my mouth, um, from <laughs> with meaning me, not them. Uh, kudos. Sounds awesome. Um, uh, the, you know, the I I I hope that that goes well, and that that doesn't. Intru- I mean, it sounds like you're introducing complexity that brings long security issues. So I hope it it's Indeed. done in the right way. And I'm sure it sounds like if, if they're going to bite off that little thing, I'm I'm sure they're doing it right. Um, it sounds neat. Um, I'm I know I've got a VM around here somewhere with Windows on it. I've, I I might have Edge installed. I've got no experience with it. Um, I thought the point of WASM itself is um, speed, or that being one of your core points. So if you're going to start interpreting it, is that going to slow it down? I guess that's my that was the first thought I had on it. But um, be interested to see where they go with it. I mean, they're they're definitely um, they're putting a lot of effort into this. It'd be interesting to see how big the team is. I'm betting I'm, bet, I'm betting this must be a few teams because it seems like they're doing a lot of stuff with this browser. 
Absolutely. And I, I didn't find any links to this or any connection. So here's pure conjecture on my part. But, you know, we did a little bit jokingly talk about uh, JavaScript coming into Excel and being able to use for functions. And uh, this is the type of thing that, you know, if you can turn that JavaScript into WASM sandbox, then, you know, we can still have our fun, you know, making fun of uh, the, the a world of spreadsheets that we live in. But there can actually be under the hood really good hardening sandboxing ways so that modern when we say the modern aspect of JavaScript in Excel in 2022, hopefully the threat model, the threat scenarios around that is going to be uh, night and day different from what we might have said and how we re would have reacted to that, you know, in, in 2002, 20 years ago. Um, for, speaking for, yeah, really, really, really quickly, for our two listeners who are still alive after <laughs> um, that little statement, uh, please direct your uh, um, your legal uh, cases to Security Weekly regarding uh, Matt blowing your mind by excuse me, Mike blowing your mind by saying I can't even say it. Excel being converted to WASM. That um, yeah, those a lightning bolts didn't strike me when I just said that. Anyways, go on. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll definitely we'll, we'll let, let's switch quickly into uh, maybe we will have to re redact that entire last uh, last part of the discussion because we should not if we do redact it, we can't use pixelation. So one final article real quick that is more about fun, I think, um, not necessarily something that AppSec teams may be running into directly. But I wanted to highlight it in the sense of it's a good way to, you know, looking at redaction, looking at how to reverse engineer pixelization that was using for redaction from this um, uh, great write-up from Bishop Fox. It's just a good way of having that threat-minded thinking, that type of thinking that gets beyond just, oh, we have our quote-unquote input validation that's protecting us from something, even though it shouldn't be input validation, it should be output encoding, you know, things like cross-site scripting or, or RCEs or deserialization. Let's also talk about those logic bugs or workflows or attacking the, the system as itself. And this, you know, that's why I brought up the DAO discussion, that, that Twitter thread. And this is why I also wanted to highlight this, because it's just a fun way of thinking, oh, you know what, that actually isn't, th that may be redacted, but it could be reverse engineered if we think about it from a, a, a malicious perspective, or even honestly, just a creative perspective. So it's that creativity, I think, is really what I wanted to highlight there. Um, so, and, and there's a couple of uh, additional links I threw into the show notes around redaction that I thought were kind of interesting that have been on my radar um, every so often. So um, rather than having to redact our entire discussion about WASM and Excel and JavaScript, uh, John, let, let's not, let, leave us with something that we don't have to redact as a final thought for you i'm bringing this right back to where we started talking about labs so um folks interested in application security you don't necessarily have to be getting port swigger or tcp dump or things like that you could very honestly and sincerely just go and focus on the machine learning side of this i think this is really neat right mm. go grab yourself a copy of Ju uh, jupyter notebook um point it at like a, a gpu somewhere and start working on doing a little bit of you know um uh, image net and see what you can do about uh character recognition this is a very a very solidly studied and researched area of machine learning. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to get into image recognition. There's tons of research in it. So if you want to spend a weekend, um, this could probably be a fun way to, to get playing and, and actually doing something that's current and sexy and looks great in your resume. So how about that? That sounds 
pretty awesome. So I think that's a good, good message to end on. Thank you, John, for uh, for joining us and having the chat on both segments today. Thanks, everyone else, for, for listening, hanging out with us on Discord or Twitch or any of our streaming locations where we drop this out there. Uh, please do subscribe. Give us a like. Check out the show notes because we have a lot more links in there. And uh, speaking of machine learning, machine stuff, I'm going to go listen to Machine Head by Bush. And with that message, we'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly. 